Well, it is good to be back in the pulpit here this morning after a brief uh, preaching sabbatical. Not a sabbatical. We were very clear to, to make sure you understood the difference. Not a sabbatical. I was still uh, very much present and, and uh, working and getting things done. I just uh, took four Sundays away from preaching. But I'm uh, delighted to be back here in the pulpit. Um, I'd like to take a moment to express my appreciation for the excellent, and I mean that, excellent preaching from pastors Richard and Jeff over the last four Sundays. Not for a second have I ever viewed them as fill-ins or substitutes. Uh, and, if, and if you had that thought um, four weeks ago, well, I'm sure over the last few weeks that, that idea has been um, eradicated from your mind. They are not fill-ins. They are vital components to the ministry of the Word here at EMC. And I praise God for them and for the really the abundance of, of capable and spirit-filled preachers at this church. It is a uh, a blessing and a gift, and I give God praise for, uh, for them and their faithfulness to the scriptures. Um, unfortunately, I believe they may have, these two guys may have spoiled you over the last few weeks because I will not be singing the benediction, <laughs> all right? And I did not write a, bra- yeah, <laughs> yeah, let, you should have clapped for that. I will not be singing. And I didn't write a brand new song as part of my message this morning. So if you have come looking for something like that, you're going to be sorely disappointed for sure. Uh, I'm just going to have to offer what I can here this morning. Uh, Turn with me, if you would, to the Gospel of Luke. That's where we're going to be spending uh, the next several weeks here together as we wrap up uh, the summer quarter of preaching. This will take us all the way to the end of August. Um, and th- you notice on the front of your bulletin, there's a, a new sermon series here this morning. We're going to be focusing on, uh, over these next several weeks, what was it about Jesus that, that drew people to him? What was it about him that caused the crowds to gather? 32 times, Luke tells us in his gospel, crowds gathered or individuals pressed in to Jesus, to see him, to hear him. We're told multiple times even to touch him. People could not get enough of Jesus, and I want to know why. This morning, we'll be in chapter 7. So if you grabbed a guest Bible, which, by the way, those are back there uh, at each of the doors. If you do not have a Bible or if you would want to follow along in the, the NLT translation, those are there for you. If you would like to keep those Bibles, those are our gift to you. So feel free to take advantage of that if you want. If you grabbed one of those Bibles, we'll be on page 829. Uh, I think you will find that this is a well-known passage here from the Gospel of Luke. And I happen to find it particularly interesting based on its placement, where Luke puts it in the, the corpus of his, of his work here. It's the first account that we come across following that kind of curious passage just a few verses prior in 18 through 33, where John the Baptist is inquiring as to whether Jesus was truly the promised Messiah or not. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because after all, John the Baptist, he was what? He was the forerunner. He was the one that was sent by God. He was prophesied in the Old Testament that he would come and he would prepare the way for, for the Messiah. And we're told all throughout the the early parts of each of the Gospels that that John played a a, a crucial part in in helping identify who Jesus was. He was the one at the riverside as he prepared to baptize Jesus who saw him as the Lamb of God sent to take away the sins of the world. John the Baptist himself, in the passage just before this one, has sent a few of his disciples to ask if Jesus was indeed 
who he thought he was because he'd been hearing reports. The word had come to John of the things Jesus was saying, the things that Jesus was doing. And, and for some reason, we know as we, as we dive into the gospel here, but for some reason, confusion and, and perhaps even doubt began to creep into John's mind. Was Jesus in fact the Messiah? And so he sent his own disciples to come and, and find out. Now, it makes a little more sense, this confusion and doubt, when we remember back in chapter 3, whenever John talked about the coming Messiah, he was associating with, with that figure things like God's wrath and God's judgment and, God's, and, and destruction from God. He said strong things like the axe of God's judgment is poised to chop down fruitless trees and cast them into the fire. It's pretty strong language, isn't it? Or he will come and bring a winnowing fork, and he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. And the chaff, of course, is destined for fire as well. And yet, as John begins hearing the actual, about the actual things that Jesus is saying and the things that Jesus is doing, he's not hearing a whole lot of that stuff, is he? And so he begins to wonder. Now, Jesus' response to him is telling. Jesus, of course, points John back to Isaiah. Where John, where John really already was there in Isaiah 61, the second half or the last kind of little fragment of, of verse 2. If you wanted to flip there, you can, but you don't need to. Um, it is there where Isaiah prophesies about the coming day of God's vengeance. But Jesus is reminding John, you're not wrong about that, John, but don't forget about verse 1 in the first half of verse 2. And you hear Jesus' reference to the totality of Isaiah's prophecy in his response to John when he says, tell John that the blind see and the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. See, John wasn't wrong in associating vengeance and judgment to the Messiah. He just was missing the things that must come first. The proof of Jesus' identity and the evidence of the kingdom of God breaking into the present could indeed be found in the things Jesus was saying and doing. And to show that, Luke gives us our text this morning. So there's the connection. There's the, the introduction that gives you context and helps us to see what's going on in our passage this morning. It's the very next thing that Luke records after telling us about this interaction with John. So turn with me there, Luke chapter 7. We're going to begin reading in verse 36. And we're going to read down uh, to verse 50. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 
500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman, but he said to Simon, Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man? He goes around forgiving sins. And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. As we read through Luke's gospel, we will quickly learn that Luke loves the banquet table setting. It's one of his favorite uh, places to, to locate Jesus and to have these sort of key interactions in his gospel. And this story here is perhaps the second most memorable or perhaps even second most important of those banquet settings next to the, the uh, Lord's Supper itself. Now, previously in chapter 5, at the last banquet setting, we found Jesus dining with Levi, the tax collector. And it was a gathering that was interrupted by some Pharisees and teachers of religious law. But here we have the reverse thing going on. So instead of Jesus dining with the sinner, with the so-called righteous crashing the party, here Jesus is dining with the Pharisee when a certain immoral woman crashes the party. Now, prior to this point, Luke has mentioned Pharisees six different times in his gospel, and every single time they are treated or presented as the antagonists to Jesus. They are not friendlies. They are there to give him a hard time, to undermine his authority, to question everything he says and does, to have that all-seeing you know, eye of scrutiny, just waiting for him to, to miss the mark or say the wrong thing and get tripped up. Which makes this story all that much more eyebrow-raising when we consider who was doing the inviting of Jesus to dinner. Why was the Pharisee asking Jesus to come into his home? Well, in verse 36, in the NLT at least, it says that Jesus sat down to eat. But really in the Greek, the verb there isn't sit down. The verb there is recline. I'm sure some of you have Bibles in here that might have retained that the idea of reclining in the translation. Or perhaps there's a little asterisk next to the word sat. And you go down to the footnotes and you see that technically the Greek says reclined. And, that, and that's precisely what Jesus was doing. He wasn't sitting on a chair um, he, was, he was leaning perhaps on his left elbow on, the, on the, the ground with his feet pointed away from the table and his face towards his host, and they would eat with their right hand. This was the custom for formal sort of ceremonial gatherings such as this. They would sit in a, uh, I believe it's called a triclinium, it's sort of a three-sided um, um, row of, of mats on the ground, and the food was in the middle, and it was the, it was the custom of, of people in that day. And Banquets to the first century Jew were highly ceremonial. 
To be invited to one was, was an honor, but it also presented uh, a degree of risk, right? Because you had, to, you had to follow the protocols. You had to make sure that you didn't do anything that would bring shame to yourself or, or violate the ceremony or viol- violate the ritual or produce or present some sort of uh, degree of uncleanness to what was going on. There's supposed to be a, a kosher setting. Things were supposed to be done exactly by the, the letter of the law. How's Jesus going to conduct himself in such a context? Makes you wonder, especially as you're reading through the Gospels. Because as you know, time and time again, Jesus received criticism because of his seeming disregard for ceremony. Jesus did not follow all the little dots and and you know all the, the protocols. He didn't he didn't exactly conform to all the ceremonies of cleanness and ritual purity. And, and so you wonder, in this context, and as Jesus is sort of brought into the lion's den, as it were, how is he going to handle that? How is he going to behave? Is he going to do anything that's going to bring discredit to his, himself or his message? Is there anything here that's going to undermine his growing popularity? You almost wonder, and I, I, I can't say this with certainty, but it has the feeling, at least, that perhaps Jesus has gone into a trap. Maybe that's what's behind this invitation. Can't say that for sure, but it makes you wonder. But it's here in verse 37 that the story takes sort of an unexpected turn. If you look there, you'll see that a particular woman in question arrives. And she has been the object of much conjecture over the centuries, I can assure you. If you have a commentary at home... Um, or access to a commentary or two, uh, take a look sometime at what the commentaries have to say about this woman. There's all sorts of speculation out there about who she was and what this, what's going on here. Some contend for a variety of reasons that this, in fact, was a prostitute. But, of course, I can't find any definitive evidence in the scriptures to suggest that. There have been some throughout church history who have, who have made that assumption, others who have debunked that, I've read the arguments for both. Frankly, myself, as I look at the text, I don't see anything directly in the text that would demand that we think that about her, but it's possible, but we don't know for sure. Others argue that this was actually Mary Magdalene herself. And they, they base that on the fact that very early in the next chapter, in chapter 8, she is named for the first time in the gospel. And so they make this assumption that she was the one here, and therefore Luke now describes her as present along with Jesus in the chapters to come. But of course, there's nothing that demands that. That's speculation. We can't say for sure whether that's Mary Magdalene or not. So we can only assume or not assume. Some believe that this account is just Luke's sort of reworked version of the, the account of the anointing at Bethany. You may, you may recall this, this story probably sounded very familiar. But if you're, if you're really uh, keen in, in the scriptures, you may have noticed, well, Luke's account sounds very different from Matthew and Mark and John. And that's because, in my opinion, there's two separate anointings being mentioned in the, in the Gospels. Yeah, there's, there's similarities between what's going on here and what we find in the other Gospels, but there's some really key differences that, that distinguish them from each other. For example, uh, this takes place very early in Jesus' ministry versus the other that takes place the, the week that he is crucified. One takes place in Galilee, one takes place in Bethany. One takes place in the home of a Pharisee, one takes place in the home of a leper. And, and on and on, you can find these differences that call into question whether this is the, the same thing 
or not. I tend to think that it is not, that there are two different anointing stories. One where the woman anoints his feet with her tears and perfume, and the others that talk about anointing his head with just perfume. They're different. They're different stories. But what can we say for sure? <laughs> right? We've talked about the things that, that people say with some doubt or some uncertainty, but what can we know for sure? Well, I can tell you this. You can be confident that she was not a welcomed guest at that table. You can be confident that this notoriously sinful woman, whether a prostitute or not, had no business crashing a banquet such as this in the way and manner that she did. It violates all the customs. It went against all the expectations, all the rules. She and the Pharisee occupied polar opposite extremes of the first century Jewish social spectrum. They did not belong in the same space together. And to come into contact with her, it's one thing for her to be there. And it's true, there, maybe she was part of the gallery. That, that was a custom. You'd have important figures dining at the banquets. Then you would have spectators who would be watching and observing. Perhaps she was, perhaps she was there, but she did more than that, didn't she? She came to Jesus and came into contact with Jesus and to do such a thing would render him ceremonially unclean and undermine his reputation. And yet Jesus permits it, which leads the Pharisee to conclude, this can't be a man from God. No man from God would sit here at my table and let that woman do this. There's no way he is a prophet. There's, if, he, if he knew anything about her at all, he's either completely ignorant or he himself is a sinner too. But you know, this passage is not about Jewish ceremony. It's not about even Jesus' attitude towards the rules concerning ritual purity. Remember the introduction. Remember the context. When does Luke place this in his gospel? What immediately preceded it? Why do you think this is here? Well, Luke is substantiating to you and me, to his readers. He's substantiating Jesus' claims to John the Baptist that the kingdom of God is at hand as evidenced by his ministry. If Jesus' answer to John is, look, I know you're doubting my identity. I know you're questioning whether I am indeed the Messiah and whether the kingdom of God is indeed crashing into the present. I know you're questioning it, but listen, if you look at what's actually happening, if you listen to what I'm actually saying and see what I'm actually doing, you will know without a doubt that I am fulfilling Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. That I am who, I, who you said that I am. And Luke is substantiating that right here. Luke is giving us exhibit A, of Jesus' key point there in verse 23, a few verses prior to where we are this morning, where Jesus says that the blessings of God's kingdom rest upon those who are not offended by him. And so here you have, here you have two people presented with a choice. When, when seeing and hearing the things Jesus is doing and saying, how will you respond? Everyone's focus in the story is on Jesus' reaction to the woman. But according to Jesus, God is focused on everyone's reaction to Jesus. Now look, let's look at the contrast between how everyone reacts to Jesus then. Look at the behavior of the woman in the Pharisee with regard to him. Three times in verse 38. And you know when something's repeated it is almost 
always for emphasis. Three times in verse 38 alone, we are told how the woman is beside Jesus' feet. What's the significance of that? Well, it's a position of humility. It's a, it's a position, a posture, a location of servitude. Verses 37 and 38 will detail eight verbal actions regarding the woman. She heard he was eating there. She brought a jar of ointment. She knelt beside him. She wept on and wiped and kissed and anointed his feet. Together, all these actions highlight her remarkable determination to be where Jesus was, her remarkable dedication to him, her deep, profound love for him. But then you contrast that with the Pharisee. What's the only action attributed to him in the passage? Well, he asked Jesus to dinner, which may or may not have had hidden intentions. And notice how Jesus himself points out this contrast in verses 44 and through 46. He says in verse 44, When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her hair and wiped them with her with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. Jesus has correctly identified all the things that the Pharisee has not done. How do we account for this contrast in behaviors? How do we make sense of the the extremely polar opposite differences to how people are reacting to Jesus in this one story? Well, the answer, of course, comes in the form of a parable. It's the parable that Jesus himself told in verses 41 and 42, which, by the way, of all the parables of Jesus, this is one of the most straightforward ones that you'll ever hear uttered from his lips. Most of the time, uh, his parables come with a degree of confusion or uncertainty, and you, you sort of, you're invited to draw closer and find out, well, what did that actually mean, Jesus? What, what was the point of the parable? And you see that happening with the disciples. They're always baffled by the things Jesus is teaching. And so after he's done, they have to kind of draw closer and find out, well, what, what was that all about again? What were you saying? And that's the purpose of a parable. It's, 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 in, invite, it's intended to, well, in many ways, harden the hard-hearted, but draw closer those who have an ear to hear. But this one leaves really no ambiguity. It's pretty straightforward. You have two people, each who owe a debt. One happens to be significantly more than the other, but both have a debt. And yet both of them are kindly forgiven. And so Jesus asked the question, who loved the lender more? Who was more appreciative of what the lender had done in his forgiving the debts? And, and of course, the answer is so obvious that even the Pharisee could see it. It is the one who owed him more. And Jesus said, you're, you're right. But there's a hidden little truth in the parable here and in our story. The truth is, even though one owed 10 times more than the other, in reality, they both still owed quite a debt. And do not both of our figures here in the story, in, in, in front of Jesus, do not they both owe a debt as well? Now, it's easy to answer that for the sinful woman. Of course, she's, she's a notorious sinner. She's, she has a reputation this is a, a notorious, 
public figure. This is that certain immoral woman, and you almost wonder how many of Luke's original readers knew exactly who he was talking about. They may have known quite well who he was talking about. She was notorious. Clearly, she is in need of forgiveness. And I wonder how many of us here this morning identify with her. We think back upon our own history of sin, of all the ways that we have messed up, all the ways that we have fallen short, whether in public, in front of the, the world to see, or, or how often in private. We think about all the ways that we have offended God, the ways that we have hurt others, the ways that we have brought shame and humility to our family and to our name. And we identify with her longing for forgiveness, for the burden to be lifted, for the slate to be wiped clean. We we absolutely identify with her and we see ourselves in her and when we come to this story, it brings us hope. Hope that even someone like me could find forgiveness from Jesus. But does not the Pharisee also owe a debt? Yes, he's kept all the protocols. He's followed the letter of the law. He's, he's done all the right things. He's prepared everything properly. He's doing everything the right way. But what about his own sins of pride or self-righteousness? What about his own religiosity utterly preoccupied with the superficial? What do you think that does to the heart of God when he sees someone who has a surface-only religiosity where it's all about the presentation? It's all about the outside, what others see. The Pharisee, you see, may have welcomed Jesus ceremonially, but the woman has welcomed him personally. And that makes all the difference in the world. The woman, she's broken all the protocols, hasn't she? She's gone against all the conventions, all the rules. She's doing everything wrong in the sight of all the people there. And yet she does that. Why? Because to her, Jesus supersedes all the rules. Jesus is more important than the ceremony. He's all that matters. And where the Pharisee, with all of his rule keeping and, and all of his, his rules that he presents and projects onto those around him, he's only welcomed Jesus on the surface. She's welcomed him where? Oh, she's welcomed him deep in the heart. Now, I don't think this is a story of one who owes much and one who owes little. I believe it's a story of two who owe much and only one who truly realizes it. And so this story is not just for those who have that long, shameful history of sin, but it is also for those who are blinded by their pride and their self-righteousness to their own need for forgiveness and healing. That's who this story is for as much as anybody. And I'm not just talking about the hardened non-believer, and there may be a hardened non-believer in here this morning. And by hardened, I mean you have been presented truth time and time again. People have tried to convince you of, of, of who Jesus was and that the Bible is, is truth and that you need to give your life to God, and you have become 
hardened to it. You refuse. You reject it outright. And the more people try to press it upon you, the more you want to push it away. And, and this story is for you, by the way, but it's not just for you. It's not just for the hardened non-believer. It's also for the very large contingent of so-called Christians in our culture today whose interest in Jesus is surface level only. People who occupy buildings such as our own, seats just like the ones you're sitting in, people who, who show up and go through the motions, who, who have a generic nominal, meaning name only, form of Christianity, one defined by keeping up appearances, checking off lists, taking notice of the, the failures of others. There's no shortage of people like that in our churches today. And I contend this story is for you, if that describes you. And here Jesus is positioned amidst these two types of people. Maybe John's idea of a Messiah who carries, carries a winnowing fork isn't all that much off the mark after all. Because Jesus brings division. Jesus separates the wheat from the chaff. Jesus causes people to take sides. And yet, as Jesus stands in the midst of what seem like completely polar opposites, extreme types of people, nevertheless, he offers himself to both. To both. For all the discussion in this narrative about ceremony and ritual and protocol, about who welcomed Jesus best, he failed to do all of those things. Look at all the wonderful things she did, and that occupies our attention rightly. We need to look at the, the details of the text and see what it says to us and understand what it means. But for all of our attention on those things, the most important welcome in this passage is the welcome of Jesus. That's the welcome that matters. Look again at verse 47. The verb tenses matter. There's a reason Luke says what he says in the way he says it. And if we just breeze over it in our, in our haste to get to the end of our Bible study, we'll miss the details that matter. Look at verse 47. What does Jesus say? I tell you, her sins, and they are many. <laughs> Jesus is not dismissing the sin here. And he never dismisses sin. But he says, I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. What do you hear there in those verb tenses? Her sins have been forgiven, so she has shown me much love. What well, tells me that her sins aren't forgiven because she showed him much love. But that she has shown him much love because her sins are forgiven. That may not seem like a big difference to you. It may sound like I'm mincing words or playing games. I'm not. That difference could not mean more to your life and to mine. Because that difference tells us that everything we see from the woman is the result 
of her experience of forgiveness. It's the result. It's not the basis of it. It's the result. Which means that the welcome in the mercy of Jesus is not contingent upon any action that a person takes. It's confirmed by the parable. What did the lender do when he found that both the person who owed 50 and the person who owed 500 couldn't repay him? What did he do? He kindly forgave them. That's the point of the parable. We get wrapped up in the numbers. And, and yeah, the, the Pharisee and Jesus are talking about who owed more. And that is, a, that is an important part of it. But let's not forget the basis of the debt's forgiveness. It is not in either person's ability to earn it. It's not because they did something that somehow made them deserving of his kindness. He forgave because of the kindness of his own heart. It's what was in here first. That's the point of the parable. Jesus didn't forgive the immoral woman because she heard him eating there and because she brought a jar of ointment and knelt beside him and wept on and wiped and kissed and anointed his feet. All those actions that Luke tells us that she did that differentiated her from, from the Pharisee. It wasn't because of those things that Jesus forgave her. No, she did those things out of love for the one who welcomed her to himself even in her sin. It's the welcome of Jesus that matters here, friends. The one who welcomes even people like her to himself. In the narrative, sort of the, the climactic ceiling statement that ties all of it together here does not say your remarkable determination and devotion has saved you. No, Jesus says what? Your faith has saved you. Your faith in me, your trust in my heart, your reception of my welcome, that is what saves you. Therefore, you can go in peace. The woman lavished love and adoration on Jesus because by faith she had received lavish love and adoration from Jesus. She welcomed him because he first welcomed her. And though her sins were many, Jesus forgave them all. And that scandalizes not just the men <laughs> with all their rules and all their understanding of righteousness. In their mind, they'd perverted it into a righteousness by works. It doesn't just scandalize them. It scandalizes everybody. In all times and in all cultures, in all religions, all places in the world, everyone is scandalized by this moment because it demonstrates that the forgiveness of God is not based on works but on grace. That is it. That's the only basis for your forgiveness is the free, lavish Grace of God received by faith, made available even to the most sinful of sinners. I almost want to believe that she was a prostitute because it would have made no difference on the outcome of this story. 
we tend to categorize and put different weight upon sins, don't we? I mean, I know I have that stuff, but at least I'm not like Bruce over there. <laughs> I'm another Bruce, not you. We do that, don't we? We start to compare ourselves to people. We know we're in the wrong in something or we have this issue we struggle with, but we comfort ourselves. It's therapeutic to compare ourselves to someone worse than we are. And you can find the worst of the worst of the worst and Jesus welcomes even them to himself. Friends, you and I are in the crosshairs of God's love through Christ. And we all owe him much. And in some form or fashion, every one of us is represented in this story. If you are the woman, well, be comforted with the knowledge that the one who knows you best still loves you. (laughs) The one who knows the very worst about you and what you've done, he still welcomes you. He invites you to come to him and put your faith in him and enter into his kingdom and be at peace with God. But even if you are the Pharisee in this story, with a a surface-level religiosity only, or this deep sense of self-righteousness, or a super superficial devotion to Jesus, or a judgmental attitude towards others around you, well, listen, there's still hope for you too. And I'll tell you why. You probably didn't catch it right away. In fact, I didn't catch it until studying this week, and it it really brought a a new degree of uh, depth to the passage here, and it really meant a lot to discover this, this little point here. Yes, In Luke's gospel, the Pharisees are always the antagonists. I looked at every single passage in the entire gospel where a Pharisee is mentioned. And every single time, bar none, a Pharisee is the antagonist. But Luke leaves this guy's story open. He leaves it open. We don't know for sure what became of him. But there's something in the text here that is worth noting. And it's there in verse 40. If you want to Maybe it can be on the screen. You have your Bible. Look at verse 40. Jesus has perceived his thoughts. Luke, Luke is clear on what he says. In verse 39, he says, When the Pharisee who had invited him saw what was happening, he said to himself. This wasn't something he, he blasted and announced out to the group. This is, this is his own internal sort of monologue here. As he's, 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 he's uh, ruminating on what's going on. He's, he's trying to uh, make heads or tails of it. And he's, he's thinking and he's, he's outraged in his heart. And Jesus, verse 40, answered his thoughts. Jesus knew what was going on in his mind. And he said this, Simon, did you catch that? Simon, did you know that not a single other Pharisee in the Gospel of Luke is named? I looked at every, every occurrence 23 times. This is the only one. You might be saying, well, what's so significant about that, Pastor Sean? Well, I'll tell you what. From the very beginning of his gospel, all the way back in chapter 1, verse 2, Luke has staked the integrity of what he is reporting upon the presence of eyewitnesses. Real people who were there, who could vouch for what he's saying, who can back up his account. 
real people in flesh and blood with names. And because he has staked everything upon the the presence and, and the importance of the eyewitness account, anytime someone has joined the Christian movement, their name is mentioned and recorded. And I wonder, we don't know for sure, but I just wonder, maybe, just maybe, is that why, that's why we get this guy's name here. Maybe that's what became of him. You know, we don't know the name of the rich young ruler, do we? Can you tell me his name? Maybe at some point in church history, someone ascribed a name to him, and people have treated that as gospel truth, but I, I don't know his name. I don't remember the scriptures telling us his name. He's forgotten in the annals of history, remembered only by his unwillingness to follow Jesus. No one knows the names of any of the other Pharisees mentioned in Luke's gospel. They're always the nameless antagonists, but we know his name. We know Simon, and that gives us hope. Maybe you don't identify with the woman. Maybe you identify with him. And I want you to have hope this morning that even the most hardened, skeptical, reluctant among us, even those of us who have laid traps for Jesus or have spent all sorts of time and energy and and, and their lives devoted to undermining him, to discredit him, to disprove him, or just to disregard him no matter all the evidence that is, that is around you that, where he's made himself plainly visible and you've rejected him again and again, perhaps even for many years, I want you to have hope here this morning that his welcome is not just for the one with the notorious, public, obvious, long, shameful history of sin. His welcome is even for you. He calls even people like Simon by name, that they, too, might receive his welcome, and that you, too, might receive his welcome, perhaps even this morning. The crowds were drawn to Jesus for a reason, and for at least one woman, it was his invitation to come to him just as she was. I find that pretty attractive about him myself. Will you come to him? Will you put your trust in him? Will you enter into the joy and the peace of the kingdom of God? That's your invitation this morning. As I invite Pastor Jeff and the worship team to come, we're gonna have a closing song and you're invited wherever you are in the spectrum, wherever you are in the, on the journey of faith, whether you've been walking with Jesus for decades or a century, (laughs) or if you have rejected him for a very long time, you're invited to come and receive his welcome, the one who says yes to you, even in your sin. He lavishes you with his love. He adores you. He's not disgusted by you. He welcomes you to himself. Will you come to him? Lord, thank you that you welcome us to yourself just as we are. You don't dismiss the truth of who we are. You acknowledge it. The woman was sinful. Her sins were many. You didn't pretend that 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 wasn't the case. You didn't blow it off as if it wasn't a problem. 
and you, you don't ever intend to leave us as, you, as we come to you, but you welcome us as we are. In this moment right now, your invitation is to come and experience the sweetness of your presence, the radiance of your countenance, to match your loving, welcoming gaze. Lord, help us to perceive it with our hearts this morning. Holy Spirit, right now, would you, would you illuminate each person's whole person to the, the warm embrace of God? Help us to see it. Help us to receive it. Help us to reciprocate it and find in you life and healing and wholeness and peace and love. Lord, thank you for who you are and all that you've done to bring us back to yourself. May we come to you in faith, in Jesus' name, amen.